0: And now, Lord, as we come to your Word, let our hearts be softened to receive it. Apply it by your Spirit, because we acknowledge, Lord, that apart from your Spirit working faith in us, apart from abiding in Christ, we can do nothing and are helpless in and of ourselves to do anything that would be pleasing to you. So draw us near to you, O Lord. Give us wisdom to examine ourselves as we consider your Word this morning. Let it be a blessing to those who hear it and a stern warning to those who would reject it, for we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Psalm 52 today, and if you've been to New Beginnings Church for some time, you'll know that for the past few years, we like to start the month off uh, in the Psalms, and we'll be doing that once again today, And this one, I think, is going to be particularly relevant for our day and age since the last three years, I think, especially have demonstrated that our culture is one that is enshrouded in lies. It loves to boast in its pride, setting aside a whole month for it. It is self-exalting, twisted in its arrogance. You might even say that it considers it to be virtuous to deny reality. The majority of the people are far more apt to affirm things that are obviously not true and deny things that have always been understood to be true rather than go against the stream of the prevailing world's thought. Sadly, this is the case in much of the professing body of Christians in America today as well as we clearly see in the recent Ligonier Biennial State of Theology Survey that recently came out. And we're not talking about deep spiritual things, just basic concepts that are imprinted in nature, the things that God has programmed into His creation. You don't have to look any further than the blatant contradictions when it presents itself as facts in media or the news all kinds of perversions of gender and race, a godless concept of justice and so on. Those things get shoved into school curriculums and into our movies and our TV shows and probably our cereal, if they could. (laughs) But above all is the notion that you're good just as you are, that what is best for you is to follow your heart. Whatever feels right is the right thing. But let me tell you that nothing... Could be further from the truth. The depravity of man is the biblical doctrine that is perhaps most despised by people that hate God and love themselves far too much, or maybe I should say rather they hate themselves and everyone around them because they do not practice the truth. Therefore, they are liars by nature and evildoers. And that was all one of us at one point or another. And to the extent that we still tolerate sin, it still is. It's in the heart of humanity to exalt itself, to exalt the creation over the creator. We read that in Romans chapter 1, where it says, For the wrath of God is revealed in heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God, about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Bearing all that in mind, we should be watchful that we, as the body of Christ here today, do not entertain a notion of living for God or serving God that is devoid of a desire for Him, Him as He truly is, the God revealed in Scripture. Let me say that again. Living in a notion of serving God, but without a desire for Him as God. How do we know who He is? Well, we know through His Word. Do you twist who He is to fit your standards? Or do you humble yourself in submission to His will? To serve a God that doesn't square up with Scripture is to serve a God of your own imagination. And that is to say, it's to live a lie. But to live by the Word of God, the Bible is to live in reality. You may enjoy... The company here, you may like our style of worship. You may be intellectually stimulated by listening to biblical exposition. You may think that there are some good moral lessons to be taken away from Christianity. But the question is, do you follow Christ? Do you yearn to be in his presence, to grow in his likeness, to glorify him by putting off your old sinful nature and putting on his character, putting his character on display. I must warn you now that if your faith is not in Christ, and if you do not follow the God of the Bible, this will be a difficult message for you, because unless such a person repents and trusts in Christ, they will not be counted among the righteous, but the wicked. And trust me, you don't want to be one of those. The point of the passage today is this the wicked will be uprooted, destroyed, brought to nothing, their ambitions brought to nothing. But those that follow and worship and serve the true and living God will be firmly planted, established forever in his loving kindness. Now, before we really dive into the passage today, I want to draw your attention to the superscription of the psalm that we'll be looking at. And that's the small text on the top and most of your Bibles should include it. And the reason that the superscription matters particularly for this psalm is because this is a historical psalm like Psalm 51 which we heard last month. This was composed in response to a specific event that occurred in David's life. We will begin with that understanding and move out from there. So let's take a look at that. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, 1995 translation. It says, For the choir director, a maskil of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now, Maybe some of you are amazing Bible scholars and know this story right off your head, but for those that don't, I think it would be wise to jog our memories as to what this is referencing. You'll probably be familiar with the fact that there was a time in David's life that involved a lot of running and hiding. He was, of course, fleeing from Saul, Israel's first king. He was fleeing from Saul because Saul was hunting him. He was jealous of David. Saul coveted David's God-given success as a military leader and sought to take his vengeance. His pride wouldn't let him rest until David was put to death. As an extension of that mission, Saul also had many military generals. He had servants. He had informants. He had administrators. And he had tenants. And Doeg was one such man. And Doeg, whose name means anxious, there's not much information given about him, but what we do know is that he was from the land of Edom. And Edom was a land that was frequently under God's judgment. Moreover, he was a servant of Saul, the chief herdsman of his flock. Now, after David had met with his dear friend Jonathan, who also happened to be Saul's son, He fled to escape capture once again. And we pick up that story in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 7, where it says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out the vessels of the young men were holy. Though it was an ordinary journey, how much more then today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken. Now, one of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. Doeg was a witness of David's coming to Ahimelech, the priest, for help. It's important to note, in case you missed it, that David actually lied to Ahimelech here. He lied about the reason that he was coming. He he lied that he was coming to do business on the basis of what Saul had informed him. If David was afraid, and maybe perhaps he was trying to spare himself, he wouldn't have told such a lie if he had trusted God and told the truth. And as we'll see, that would have longstanding consequences And this is despite the fact that Ahimelech was a priest who held David in high regard. Whatever the case, it would go on to be devastating for not just Ahimelech the priest, but the whole city of Nob. We should also remember that David did technically break the ceremonial law here when he came to eat the showbread, which was only to be for the priest's. Now, you'll recall the Pharisees, when they accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the law by plucking grain on the Sabbath, he used this story as an illustration in Matthew chapter 12. And not so much, I think, to condone David's actions as it was to demonstrate the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The Pharisees who fastidiously held to the law revered David. But as Jesus pointed out, even David broke the law here. Regardless, Ahimelech was now involved with David, albeit not knowing that David was actually being hunted down by Saul. And we read the sad consequences of that in 1 Samuel chapter 22. It says in verse 1, "...so David departed from there and escaped to the king of Adullam, and when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him." Skipping ahead to verse nine, then Doeg the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, "I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. He inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine." Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all the father's households or household, the priests who were in Nob. And all of them came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, here I am, my lord. Saul said to him, why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day? Then Ahimelech answered and said to the king, And who among all the servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over the guard and is honored in your house? Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of his household to my father, for your servant knows nothing of all this affair. But the king said to him, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hand to attack the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests. And he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants. Also oxen, donkeys, and sheep he struck with the edge of the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Abiathar told David that Saul, had come, or that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then, Abi, then David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me and do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, for you are safe with me. David realized here that he had compromised the safety of the priests. If he had just told the truth from the beginning, they would have at least quite possibly been able to escape the sentence of death. It's also quite shocking just how violent and wicked Saul's reaction was here. It's amazing how blinded he was by pride and jealousy what fear and pride can do to a person that even his own guards would not turn around and follow his orders. And so De- Doeg not only gave the report to Saul, but he carried out the egregious act of murdering the priests of the Lord. He didn't hesitate to kill not just Ahimelech, but all of the town of Nob, the men and the women and the children and the livestock, This was not giving into circumstantial pressure. This was a radical, abominable assault against God's people. And so, having that story fresh in your minds, let's now turn and look at Psalm 52. Psalm 52. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. The righteous will see in fear and will laugh at him saying, behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. And I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. And I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. A lot of scripture, particularly when dealing with the topic of wisdom or instruction, is structured by way of a set of contrasts between two people groups, the foolish wicked man who trusts in himself, in his riches, in his worldly faculties, and the wise and righteous man who trusts in God, in his promises and his deliverance. And so it is with this psalm, it is both historical in the sense that it encapsulates a specific event in David's life, but it is also a math skill, which is to say it has instructional value to its hearer, to impart wisdom and to encourage trust in God. And to be wise in the Hebrew context isn't necessarily about applying intellectual insights, as it is in much of traditional Western philosophy, but the idea has more to do with how to live a prudent life in godliness. The focus is rarely on just doing good deeds in and of itself, but it has more to do with addressing the object of a person's faith and trust. Are you trusting in God or are you trusting in your own strength or wealth or status or possessions or anything else? It is wise to trust in God, not simply because He brings blessings and may enrich your life, but primarily because He is worthy of your trust and adoration. It is not just smart to trust in God, it is morally imperative that you trust in Him. The Lord Jesus often employed that very kind of wisdom Himself in His teachings. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, He gave a discourse on true and false converts, and he followed that by giving us an example of two foundations upon which two men built. First, he said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 23, those famous, terrifying words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And then he went on to say in the following verses, therefore, in light of that, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. It's in like manner that Psalm 52 highlights particularly the utter foolishness of boastful, deceitful man who would not make God his trust. But it also highlights the trustworthiness of God to execute judgment and firmly plant his people. Doeg was one who sought an opportune moment to utilize the information that he had Saul had just been complaining that no one would divulge the truth of the matter concerning his son, Jonathan, working with David. He felt that he couldn't trust anyone anymore, and Doeg ceased the opportunity to build repute with the increasingly erratic king. But as for the king to be, David, he and all those who put their trust in God would be firmly planted and deeply rooted they would not perish by the hand of the enemy, nor die in their sins, but they would rejoice and be glad in the presence of God and His true people. With all that in mind, let's look at verse 1, where David says this. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Right away, we're presented with this Sarcastic question, why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? Mighty in his own eyes, perhaps, but clearly puny in the eyes of God. Doeg may have been considered mighty among the entourage of Saul. He may have been mighty in his boasting and his self-serving attitude as he sought a higher position for himself at the expense of another's life. But he was not mighty in righteousness or faithfulness towards God. You see, his might was connected to his boasting in evil. This sort of boasting is not so much an outward display of pride as it is an inward sense of self-sufficiency, an attitude of superiority. I'm so smart, I'm so clever... By my own cunning and wit, I have got myself here. I have proven my worth to the king, and now I will surely be rewarded with a plot of land and riches more satisfying than anything I could have imagined. So the wicked one thinks to himself. Yet we're told that it is the loving kindness of God that endures all day long. Loving kindness. Loving kindness. That's a word that we've heard Frequently throughout the Psalms. The Hebrew word, as many of you will know, is chesed. It encapsulates the ideas of good content or good intent, faithfulness, mercy, steadfastness, justice, uprightness, and so on. It has been said of God that God is love, and He is. But the love of God is a love that is qualitatively unique to Him. It is the substance of or in the substance of his very character. Whereas our love falters and is mingled with pride and boastful, sinful arrogance, much like Doeg, which is really to say even our love, when it does not reflect the character of God, is evil. But God's love is pure and unchangeable. His love is good because he is goodness. There is no standard of moral good outside of himself. Moreover, it endures, because God does not change. Therefore, God's loving kindness is mighty indeed. It does not waver or wane with time, nor is its end ever in vain, because God's love always brings him glory. Unlike Doeg and all who follow after such a pattern of wicked living who would seek to steal the glory by serving man and ultimately himself. Rather than giving the glory to God. In the case of Doeg, he sought favor with Saul by murdering the priests of God. Now, let me stop there for a moment to consider something. You may agree after hearing that story that Doeg was indeed a wicked, evil man. You may say, I have nothing to do with that kind of person. You may indeed be a follower of Jesus Christ, but have you considered this? That every time you commit sin, you make yourself, once again, a willing participant in the murder of the Lord Jesus. For what purpose did he come? To bear the sins of the world, but particularly for the sins of his people. All who would ever believe in him. How much more so, then, when you sin? Do you commit murder in your heart and treason against the Lord Jesus, our high priest? When we seek the approval of man and to gratify ourselves rather than the approval of God, are we not doing exactly what Doeg did here? Of course we are. Of course we are. Same motivation, wicked, selfish gain for self-preservation, for status, That's what led to Christ's crucifixion and the same outcome. An anointed priest of God is put to death. But it doesn't end there because Doeg was not only a murderer, he was also a liar. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. It says, your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor. O worker of deceit, you love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. Selah. Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, why is Doeg condemned as a teller of lies? Because after all, didn't he at least tell the truth to Saul? Wasn't it true that David came to Nob and that he talked to Ahimelech the priest? Well, that is true that at least in so far as Doeg conveyed factual truth about the events that transpired, he told more truth than David did. If David had the integrity to tell the truth, perhaps the priests and families at Nob may have been spared. But God, being sovereign, chose to use this event among many others in one fashion to teach David about the perils of lying to men. But through Doeg, for us, we are taught about the perils of lying before God. Understand this first, that Doeg was a servant of Saul, Israel's first chosen king. Chosen because they had rejected God. In First Samuel chapter 8, we're told that Israel had grown weary of the former judges who were appointed to lead them in the matters of righteous living before God. They wanted to be one with the crowd and have an earthly king like all the other nations did. We read in verses 4 through 7 of 1 Samuel chapter 8, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they, have, that they say to you. For they, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me as king over them. There is a difference between a leader and one who simply gives orders. They're not the same thing. Because someone who gives orders only requires compliance. But a leader rallies the hearts of those who follow them. Saul, in his kingly capacity, was not merely giving orders to an Israel that was captivated by him. He was an extension of the wayward heart of the ethnic people of God. He was considered by them to be a servant of God for Israel. But it was not in accordance with a love for God. That is the role that David would come to fulfill. But Doeg, by extension of serving the king, was likewise seen as serving the interests of God. But in his heart and in truth, he served men and himself. Because that's the approval he sought after. If, we, if he had refused to partake in the murder of the priests at Nob, like Saul's guards did, then perhaps we would have reason to suspect that he was at least not intentionally seeking to do evil. But there's no doubt here, he was persecuting the people of God and persecuting God himself. Because you see, while the information that he told Saul in the narrative was factually true, his heart devised a wicked and evil scheme founded on the lie that he was serving God and the king. He wanted to be seen merely as following orders. That he was just following what the king told him. But in reality, he was using it as a way of achieving gain for himself. By murdering a whole city. So his evil was not just murder. It was concocting deceit. And the end of which was destruction. Just as the verses say. Verses 2 and 3, your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, a worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and falsehood more than speaking what is right. Listen, God doesn't need lies to accomplish his purposes, however pragmatic it sounds, and certainly not for whatever selfish gain it may bring to us. God is a God of truth, and so his people should be people of the truth. Neither should we heed the instruction of someone, even if they have an outward appearance of following Christ, if their teaching doesn't square up with what the Scripture says and with the character of God as revealed in His Word. What Saul ordered was evil, and Doeg in his heart knew it, and so he bears guilt by obliging to it. We're instructed and admonished in Ephesians chapter 5, in verses 6 through 13. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is disgraceful to even speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. When we listen to the truth and obey the truth of God's word, the revelation that we have received from God himself, the result is invariably good. Because truth and moral goodness, they always go hand in hand. God is the standard of both. And in the economy of God, those attributes are inseparable. And in like fashion, the lies and the evil, those things or rather I should say non-truth and non-good, are also invariably entwined. Understand that moral goodness is not exercised by obeying lies, nor is moral truth extracted from actions or inclinations toward evil. They are by nature in contradiction to one another. God, in His sovereignty, can still use lies and evil acts of fallen creatures to accomplish accomplish His good purposes as He does all throughout the Bible and in our own lives. But in and of themselves, the result is to destroy. They proceed from the father of lies, Satan himself, who prowls like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Likewise, in Psalm 52, it says in verse 4, You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Notice the connection between those two clauses. A deceitful tongue that devours. The tongue which spoke deceit insofar as it sought sordid gain in the name of serving God and the king devoured the lives of Himelech and the people of Nob. Moreover, we're told that Doeg had a love A love for all words that devour. You understand how that love is entirely unlike God's love. And that's why sayings like love is love are frankly so stupid. A love that is devoid of the truth and relishes in what is contrary to the nature and will of God is evil. And this verse also highlights the reality that words are powerful and the tongue, the tongue is dangerous. We're warned of that all throughout Scripture as well. And it's no surprise then that Satan's primary weapon against the people of God from the beginning in Genesis all the way to Revelation, as well as in this account, is to tell and propagate lies. James, for instance, writes this in James chapter 3. Look also at the ships though they are so great and are driven by strong winds are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires so also the tongue is a small part of the body and yet it boasts in great things see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire and the tongue is a fire In the very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds and reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse men. ...who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh? Which of you here today... Can't say that they haven't been sorry, at least to, if not to God, then at least for yourself, for something that has proceeded from your mouth. So take care then how you speak. And above all, take care of what spirit your words proceed from. Just as Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 6, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure. Brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Doeg knew exactly what he was doing when he told Saul the news of David visiting Ahimelech. So it's plain to see why he stepped forth to be the man to carry out that very treacherous act. He performed outwardly what he was already willing and ready to do in his heart to elevate his status with the king. At the cost of shedding innocent blood. Many in our day are willing to sacrifice the truth of the Word of God on the altar of pragmatism and acceptance with the world in order to satisfy their craving for status as well, so that they can boast in their heart how mighty they are, just as Stoic did. Well, what would be the long term fruit of his labor? We read that in verse 5 of the psalm. It says, But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. Wow. The result, the result is that God would take him out, that he would be destroyed, that he would be uprooted. He sowed the seeds of death, and so death would he reap. Not just physical death, but the death of his status and importance, the things which he so coveted. Not to mention the horrors of spending an eternity in the fires of hell. And for what? A brief stint with sinful pleasure. That's how all sin is, isn't it? David's legacy, of course on the other hand, finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All who are in Christ can say our legacy is a part of the great theater of redemption with Christ at its center. But Doeg's legacy, on the other hand, would be quite forgotten. Nothing else is recorded about him in Scripture other than in this psalm and the story. And all that is recorded of him is a shameful example of a man who would not make God his trust, but instead trusted in a lying tongue, in deceitful riches, rather than being rich towards God. That's true for all who boast in evil, for all who lie to God, for all who go on living and loving their devouring deceitful tongue and their sinful lifestyle. You need more convincing that God takes the truth seriously? Recall for a moment the story of Ananias and Sapphira. In that most stark picture to the early church as well as to all of us, God demonstrated how seriously he takes telling the truth and the consequences of lying. We read about that story in Acts 5 where it says, "...but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property." And kept back some of the price for himself. And his wife's, with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart, and have not lied to men, but to God? And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard it. The young men got up and covered him up, and carrying him out, buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came. In not knowing what had happened, but Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And he said, Yes. Or she said, Yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole congregation and over all who heard these things. And the church was right to fear. Because those two, like Doeg, were uprooted. They were torn out of this life as an example Of the seriousness of lying to God. Of trying to deceive him with their hypocritical, deceitful, wicked lives. And after every false teacher and wayward movement that has come and gone throughout church history. Which of them has ever prevailed against the kingdom of God? Absolutely none. None have prevailed Are they not all motivated by the desire to promote themselves and to twist Scripture rather than to follow what is plain and straightforward as revealed in the Bible? Of course they twist it. Of course they lie. Of course they're after the same deceitful, wicked riches of this world. But God is faithful and the gospel of Jesus Christ remains Every false religion and sect and person, after their time has passed, is buried as a relic in history. Another reminder of the shameful perversion of the truth, of a tree that bore no good fruit. That would eventually be the fate of the old covenant nation of Israel, wouldn't it? When John the Baptist came, if you'll recall, the final prophet, heralding the ministry of Jesus. He preached in the open air to the nation. We read about that in Matthew chapter 3, where it says, But when he, that is John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His wintering fork is in his hand. He will be thoroughly clear, or he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into his barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wow. Listen, friends. It is a good thing to be near to God. But it can also be a very dangerous thing to be near to God. Why is that? Because God is holy and you are not. How not to be uprooted? Well, consider this. A wicked man or a woman comes to God presuming upon His grace. That God will bless them if they simply try their best to live a good life, which is really code for a selfish one, because that's the nature of their heart. They're not much into talk about God's justice. They would rather think of God as a God who accepts them just the way they are, as though goodness and godliness were two separate things. But they're not. Imagine you walk outside on a hot summer day, clear skies, wearing nothing but a t shirt and shorts. What do you suppose will happen if you stay out there for too long? Eventually, you'll get sunburn, won't you? Now, imagine you try to fly up to the sun and you get closer and closer and closer. What will happen? It'll get hotter and hotter until eventually you'll be on fire. And if you keep going, there won't be anything left of you. You can't get any closer. How foolish it would be to even try, right? In the same way, how foolish is the wicked man or woman who tries to approach God on the basis of his own works. Works which are bent on promoting not the glory of God, but the glory of self. And that's all of us to one degree or another. You cannot approach him in that way nor should you even try. What do you need to protect yourself from the rays of the sun? Well, most people would say, try some sunscreen. What does a spaceship need if it's approaching the sun to not get burnt to a crisp? Well, you need layers and layers of shields to protect the internal components from being completely obliterated, Right? Well, it's in the same way God dwells in unapproachable light. We're told in Hebrews to draw near with confidence to the throne of God's grace, though. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says that. But how can we do that? How can we approach the most holy and righteous God? That would burn up our works of wickedness. Well, we have to be clothed. We have to be shielded by the righteousness of one that is not our own. Whose righteousness is sufficient? It's Christ alone. How do we obtain his righteousness? By turning away from your sins, take off your filthy, whole laden garments, and put on Christ. Trust in him alone, that you may be covered by him. Hebrews 4. Verses 13 to 16 says, "...and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin." Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Understand that not all inequities will be corrected in this life. In fact, as we live in this fallen world, we can expect that many sad and evil things will continue to happen. We certainly cannot revert the effects of the fall through our own fallen efforts. Doeg, after all, murdered the priests of Nob, but did he get away with it? What do you think? Well, the psalm is clear. Verse 5 says, But God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. Doeg, in some form or another, met his end on this earth. He was torn away from his tent, which is to say, he lost the thing he valued most as a herdsman his property, his livelihood. And like a plant that is lifted out of the ground, that is removed from its life sustaining nutrients. Even the common graces of God would be taken away from him. And regardless of what precisely happened to Doeg in this temporal life, something much worse would surely become of him in eternity. He would be broken down forever, found guilty before the judgment of God. And make no mistake, a mistake about it, friends, there is a day There is a day coming when God will bring all things into judgment and He will not let any evil deed go unpunished. In Acts chapter 17, Paul preached in his sermon on Mars Hill that God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men By raising him from the dead. All of us will have to stand before God in judgment one day. And the scripture offers no expectation of an opportunity for repentance. Once we have passed from this life through the gate of death. The time to turn from your sins and trust in Christ is now. Lest you end up like Doeg. uprooted from the land of the living and broken down Forever. Now, having said that, what kind of response would possibly be appropriate for a harsh, difficult message like that? Does the judgment of God strike fear in your heart? Does it cause you to pause and to consider the fate of those who die in their sins? It should. It should. That's the response God's people show here in the psalm. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. It says, The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. Who are the righteous? Those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're told that they will see And fear and laugh at Doeg. And this is the pattern that holds true for all who would not take refuge in the righteousness of God found in Jesus Christ. Elsewhere in Scripture, we're told that even God laughs at the wicked. In Psalm 37, for instance, it says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day coming. And it is appropriate to point out the connection here and the nuances between seeing and fearing and laughing. What does that all mean in context? Well, there are those who take the position that the Bible sanctions a kind of satirical, haughty, boisterous attitude towards sinners. But the, tr- the truth of the matter be told You're just like that boastful wicked man, Doeg. If we're talking about standing in regards to your own works, and standing in regards to your own righteousness, so why be more like him? The only distinction between you and me and him is that if you have trusted in Christ, God had mercy on you including giving you the grace to believe. If anyone has the right to laugh, it would only be God. For that reason, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God, but by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The idea with that understanding, approaching verse 6, is that these things are an expression of marveling At the rejection of God as well as a reverent awe of God's justice being executed. Seeing and fearing and laughing. It is a kind of amazement that takes aim on the one hand. The foolishness of the unbelieving human heart. But on the other hand the surety of God's judgment against evil. When Jesus returned to his hometown in Nazareth. For example, in Mark 6, it says, He could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Other translations render that as he marveled or he was amazed. Think about going to a museum, the Museum of Bible History. And we arrive at the Old Testament section, Exhibit A, And we see the souls of the unbelieving, unrepentant Israelites being plunged into the depths of hell. And we have a complex mixture of emotions running through our minds. We realize that we have been saved, that we are not on the other side of the glass that we rejoice to see the justice of God finally being executed. After so many years of suffering, after so many years of cruelty and evil, in this fallen world, vengeance is finally being executed. Yet on the other hand, we realize that we are deserving of that very same wrath. And it is by God's sheer grace and mercy that we have been passed over so that we may give Him glory in His demonstration of mercy to us by His free and sovereign choice. Not anything that we did. But as for the fate of the wicked, it's something that we can't even begin to really conceive of. How could they not trust in the Lord? After so many chances had been given to repent, we wonder. But how could we believe in God if it had not been the Spirit working in us to create that belief we remember. And so our response is a combination of both rejoicing and fear at the justice of God being poured out and the mercy of God towards sinners with enthusiasm and somberness crashing together. Our response is like that of a roaring thunderbolt. Wow! Amazing! Glorious. The words fail to express the intricate vortex of those emotions. Nevertheless, the laughter and the fear that roll from us have their one purpose, that being to glorify God. And when we approach the topic of sin and hell and judgment, we are, or many are, Hesitant to preach on that because they're afraid that it makes God out to be some sort of sadistic God that enjoys killing and violence. But God says in Ezekiel chapter 33, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel?" In Luke's gospel, we're told that Jesus, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you And surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children with you, and they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, but it is good that the wicked are punished because he is a holy and just God. God must punish evil for his own glory's sake, just as a good and righteous judge must punish criminals for their crimes. Not to do so would be evil. Failing to understand that is oftentimes why I think it's the same people who don't preach on sin and hell that they reject the biblical doctrines of grace, including total depravity of man and God's sovereign election of his people. Now maybe they mean well in trying to preserve the integrity of God's character by opening up some way in which God extends the invitation, but he can't reach their heart. They have to, with their free will, reach halfway and grab his hand. But listen, friends, our heart is wicked and evil and vile and covetous and prideful and boastful, just like Doegzis. And if it was up to our will, we would not come to God because we are by nature lovers of evil and darkness rather than lovers of God and light. We would run away from the light. Otherwise, our evil deeds would be exposed. And if God could not reach into our hearts and kindle the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, no one would be saved. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel chapter 36 that God says concerning his people, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The true follower of Jesus Christ delights to do the will of God because we possess the spirit of God. And our heart, the seat of our emotions that reaches into our very nature, is transformed. What child of God ever said or complained, God gave me his spirit, or that God gave me a heart that desires and delights in his ways? None. So when someone responds, that violates my free will, it makes me a bit concerned. Because often what that amounts to is that they value their will. And controlling their own lives more than they trust God's will and his controlling their lives. And if that's the case, maybe they're implying that they will only obey God insofar as they think that it is good. Which is just another way of saying, basically, that they are the rulers of their own lives. Which is really another way of declaring they are their own God. If that is you, watch out. Because Psalm 52 says in verse 7 that the people of God will together say, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. Doeg is one example that God chose to illustrate the actions of those who seek after the treasures of this world, money, status, comfort, but also trying to manufacture success through deception. Let me tell you, if you're trying to rule your own life, you're deceiving yourself. At the very least, you're deceiving yourself. Jesus says, rather, in Matthew 6, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me ask you a question. What do you love and spend all your time and energy energy and devotion and resources on? And what would be most disastrous to you if it were taken away from you? Whatever that thing is, that is what you worship. That is your God. Only the true God in heaven is worthy of our worship and our time and our devotion because he is the giver of life, the sustainer of life, and the redeemer of life. We do not rule our lives, but we are created for a purpose, that being chiefly to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is the substance of the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. And likewise, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is what is fitting for God's people. And then we may say along with David in Psalm 52 here, lurking at verses 8 and 9. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give thanks I'll give you thanks forever because you have done it and I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. David recognized as we should that God has planted him and preserved him. We're not self-made. We're not self-preserved or sustained. That's why he's thankful to God because he has been made to dwell in his abode he trusts in the loving kindness of God forever and ever because God's loving kindness is everlasting. It's not a blind trust in something without substance, but a trust in a known fact about the character of God, namely that God doesn't change, nor will he break his promises to preserve his people for his own name's sake. That's also why it's so incredibly, incredibly foolish to try and glorify yourself and to live for the riches and achievements of this world. To act and live in a sinful, selfish lifestyle, to befriend the world is to live in vain. That is to be gone, to be uprooted, because all of our works in this world Will be uprooted. But the works that you do for the kingdom of heaven, they will not perish. They will last. Is that you? Is that what you desire? Let me urge you to live for what matters, to consider eternity. You know, the olive tree is an important symbol in Scripture. It was a common plant that people were familiar with since it was the plant that produced the oil that they would need to fill their lamps and to give them light. But it was also among the longest living plants. It could survive for hundreds of years. And that makes it a fitting symbol for the everlasting life that God's people would inherit. In verse 9, David says, I will give thanks to you forever because you have done it. I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. David would be among his fellow servants or fellow saints giving praise and thanks to God forever because he understood that God is the one that has planted him. And since God has planted him, who or what could possibly uproot him? nothing, and no one. Moreover, he says, I will wait on your name. The name represents the character and the attributes of the person to which it is ascribed. For God, this would include things like his justice and mercy. That's also why we end our prayers in Jesus' name, because we are praying according to the character and the will of Christ. And when we're saying... Yes, let it be so, Lord, not as I will, but as you will. And so, in essence, when David is saying to God here in the psalm, I will have patience. He was saying, I will have patience as I wait for you to reveal who you are. And what an amazing thought to know God as he is. No gimmicks, no watered-down analogies. But to know God as the creator and the sustainer of all things. To know him intimately, experientially. His holiness, his loving kindness, his mercy and faithfulness. And his righteous judgment against evil. David would wait upon the Lord to vindicate him from the evil of Doeg. Moreover, he would confess that God's name is good in the presence of his godly ones. They don't need to be convinced nor put the Lord to the test. God's people know that he is good, that his judgments are altogether good, and that he alone can heal the heart broken by sin and can satisfy the desires of the hearts of his people. What about you? Can you say along with David, That God is good. And he is worthy of your thanks and praise. Do you see the sinfulness of sin? The vanity of living for anything but Christ? Is wickedness still sweet to you? Or have you begun at last to loathe the stench of sin wherever it may be found? Are you trusting in the loving kindness of God which is expressed chiefly in the person and work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? who bore the wrath of God against sin for all who would believe in him. I'm not asking you whether you know the right Christian answer to that or whether you have professed faith in Christ at some point in the past, but are you trusting in him today, right now? Or do you find yourself in the category of doeg? Unbelieving, deceiving, self-serving, and I might add, too proud to admit it. Well, I have news for you. We will all have to face God on judgment day. No one is exempt. But if you can hear this message, there is hope. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God... He will abundantly pardon. Friends, God is faithful to His promises. If anyone is here today and has not committed their lives to following Christ, it's not too late. And you haven't sinned too much. You must understand that you have violated God's law repeatedly and there is nothing you can do, nothing and no one can save you but the person in work of Christ there is no point in continuing that route. There is no remorse or wrong for your wrongdoings that can save you. But the power and the love of God is this that he gave his son to die in your place so that salvation and forgiveness of sins does not depend on what you do but on what he has done. If you trust in Christ, God will forgive your sins, remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and the desire to follow him so that you will not be a wicked deceiver seeking your own gain, seeking to establish your own little kingdom but you will be seeking to live for the kingdom that lasts, God's kingdom. If you hear Christ's voice today, don't harden your heart but confess and turn away from your sins. Look to Christ who is Your only hope of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says, Now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. All of us in this room have been accustomed to God's grace. We have been allowed to travel here today, but don't think for a moment that God is obligated to give you another minute. This is God's love extended to you. And do not reject it. Now maybe after all that, you say, I'm good. I have already believed in Jesus. I don't need this cross-examination. Does your life reflect it as David's did? Does your heart reflect it? Can you praise God as David did? Who are your closest friends? Are they unbelievers who look more like Doeg, who boast in their evil? and who blaspheme Almighty God and entice you to participate in their sinful deeds. Perhaps the reason you so enjoy being with them is because you are one of them. How about your time and resources? Are they devoted to serving God and His kingdom or to yourself? That's exactly what Doeg sought to do. It has well been said that the measure of whether you follow Christ is not sinless perfection, but a change of direction. Maybe you say, I'm struggling to follow him. Are you struggling? Or are you stillborn? What a blessing it is that God does not leave us where we are, dead in our sins, but he sent his son to die for us. We're given examples like Doeg to know the patterns of the wicked, but also that God's people may know and be assured that God's justice will be executed And His loving kindness has been extended to each of us. May God grant each of us the grace to believe and walk according to His Word so that we may be quick to tell others, like David was, what a glorious and trustworthy and praiseworthy God and Savior our God is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the blessing to be able to hear your word and to meditate on it. We thank you that though we are all fallen sinners deserving of your wrath, deserving of your judgment, we were all like doeg, liars, murderers, prideful, boasting in evil and seeking the world's riches, you gave us the testimony of Christ, your son, that we may Know the folly and the vanity of seeking those things and your willingness to save. We thank you, Lord, that you gave us your Son so that we can say along with David that we have been planted as green olive trees, planted in your house, Lord, that we may know that in you alone we live and you alone have done it. Help us, to, Lord, Lord, to understand and to grasp the sinfulness of sin and to live in light of the glorious realities of the gospel. Give us a willingness to preach it, Lord God, to be faithful stewards of the riches of Christ, to be faithful stewards of your kingdom and to give glory to you, to store up treasures in heaven rather than treasures for ourselves. Work on our hearts, Lord God, today and each and every day by your Spirit and by your Word to conform us more into the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray, amen.